Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And as you know, the the entire purpose of our podcast is to find really unique guests who come on with uh, really unique life stories. And, And more importantly than their life story is what they've learned on that journey and how their lessons on that journey can help us on ours. And today's guest is no different. Uh, In fact, he's a dear friend of mine and someone that I look up to a lot as an amazing communicator, an excellent coach. He's a great dad. He's a great husband. He's a great all-around dude. Uh, So just don't don't let him fool you if he starts to act a little humble because he does have some false humility that comes in once in a while. Uh, But Dr. Dan Doherty is with us today. And Dr. Dan, I won't won't give away his whole resume because you probably don't care. But I will tell you, he's somebody that has spent his corporate career for decades in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry as a, as a commercial leader, as a clinical leader. And then he decided to go into private equity, where he did some work there to learn the pressures and stress of what it's like to grow a company with those kind of uh, pressures on them from private equity. And then for some odd reason, decided at 47 to go back and get his PhD because he really wanted to, to leave a legacy of purpose behind how he helps people communicate, particularly in the world of coaching. And, and so I will tell you, it's going to be a treat. I can't wait to unpack with him all that he's learned on his journey and how it might help you in yours. So Dan, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I am super excited to be here. It's great to be with you as well. So Dan, you know me well enough now, and you know uh, the, the history of this episode, this, this show, and we always start with that origin story. So take us take us back to the early days of, of Dan Doherty. You know, he's young boy growing up in in Cleveland, Ohio. And 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 tell us a little bit about those early days and what you were learning and not realizing maybe you were learning and who some of those earlier influences were on you that, that kind of formed a lot of the beliefs and values that you've carried with you today that makes you who you are. Yeah, I'd love to, Jeff. So first of all, when I grew up in Cleveland, we were really good at football. I mean, I grew up back in like the 80s when like my dad kind of coming up as a blue collar tool and die apprentice that made his way through his corporate career, never had the opportunity to go to college, wanted all of his children to go to college, wanted us to have opportunities that he didn't have. And watching him kind of go through his entire career, that kind of hard work, kind of that North, you know, that Northern Ohio hard work just was so instilled in all of us as 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 kids that that's that's what we knew. You know, my dad was the guy that got up at five thirty in the morning. I didn't know any different. Not only Monday through Friday, but on Saturdays as well. And you know, one of the things he shared with me one time, Jeff, was one of the reasons he left so early as a plant manager was so he could be there when the shifts would change, and he wanted to shake people's hands as they were leaving after working all night long with the team that was coming in. So I kind of had kind of this this work ethic that was just kind of instilled in me from a, a really early age. But what I realized in growing up in Cleveland was that I was so blessed to have so many wonderful people around me. You know, and if I take you all the way back, one of the things when I realized I wasn't going to be a great athlete, wasn't going to be a great football player, was at this critical moment in time, I meet this music teacher. And this music teacher that I met in like ninth grade, that I was a part of his journey and he was part of my journey all the way through high school, instilled all these core values in me. 
that like, if you've got a dream for something, chase it. It, it doesn't really matter what other people say. If you've got a dream, go get it. You know, he also instilled another person instilled kind of that work ethic that was so critical in my background. But even beyond that, taught me what teamwork was about, taught me what leadership was about. And so this, this guy, we called him Mr. Richardson, ER, had such an influence on me throughout my high school that he's one of those people, Jeff, that as I went through my entire journey, both professionally, academically, what I'm doing now, he's one of those people that's been there through the whole journey, you know, and I want to even fast forward for a second, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak to a hospital system in Northern Ohio. And I thought, you know, this is one of these sages that had such an impact on all the values that were instilled in me. I'm going to send him a text message. I knew he still lived in Cleveland. I'm going to send him a message and say, well, you know, maybe he'll show up knowing he probably wouldn't show up. So I sent him a message and he texted me back literally within an hour. Now, mind you, I haven't seen him in 20 years. And he, I said, you know, would you love to come? I'm going to be speaking at this event. He said, well, I would love to. He's like, but I just had a colon, you know, a colon surgery and I'm in a lot of pain. I can't, it's kind of an emergency surgery. And I said, Hey, no problem. I just want to let you know how important you are to me, how all the stuff you taught me back in high school, I'm still some 30 years later trying to live out to the best of my ability. So I want to fast forward to this event and I'm standing there speaking, Jeff, and probably the first seven to eight minutes. And I'm, I'm telling a little bit of this why origin story from this music teacher had a tremendous impact on my journey. As I'm standing there talking to a room full of people, I look up and off to the left in the doorway is Mr. Richardson. Wow. And he walks in the back, he walks in the back of the room. And I literally had to stop everything in my body from like starting to cry. I mean, like literally I could feel it, you know, when it comes up in your throat, I'm like, if I swallow too hard, it's over, you know? And so all of a sudden I did, I kind of paused. And I said to the audience, it's like, you know, that guy that I was just talking about, he's in the back of the room. And everybody was like, everybody turned around like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And so there he, there the sages, some 30 plus years later, standing in the back of the room. And I was just blessed enough to be able to say thank you you know, for what impact he had. So all that stuff on leadership and teamwork through the highs and lows of life. I was fortunate to have people like my dad, people like Mr. Richardson, people like Mr. Mall that owned companies that would pick weeds with me in a garden. These amazing people in my journey that led me up to my family and my wife and our beautiful family. And it just makes me really passionate, Jeff, about building great relationships, helping people build great relationships, um, not through an academic lens, but just through a life lens, you know? And, and that's, that's kind of a little bit about my why. I just, I'll, I'll close with this. I've been so challenged in my journey to be like, can I narrow down my why into a sentence, into like one thing? And, you know, I try to live out every day, no matter how long God keeps me on this planet, I try to live out now that if I can be any small part of helping people have impact and communicate with purpose, it's so that it'll build deeper relationships. And I just think in life, um, all the technology, all the speed of information. I think we lose that art, Jeff, in communication about we need to build great relationships. And it's just critical in our personal lives. And it's critical in our professional lives. So why do you think it's so important um, for people to, to do that inventory where they reflect back on, because <clears throat> we share this similar philosophy that, you know, to know where you're going, it's important to know where you've come from. And part of understanding that early, early part of our lives is really defining and almost quantifying our, our core beliefs and those values we learned at a young age and, and and determining who had the influence on us. Because I think we learn them at an early, I don't think, I know we learn them at an early age. So then they get you know more revealed to us as we become on our journey as adults. And then they almost get reinforced 
the longer we live, right? And, and I think, but you, until you know what they are and, and look at who had those that impact on you, um, there's something missing, it seems like, for people because they have a hard time defining it. So why is it so important to do that inventory and reflect back on that time period of your life? Maybe those first from age five to age maybe 20, 25. Why is that such an important exercise that you teach people? So I'll say this to answer that question. I didn't realize the importance of this until I was in my mid 40s. And I wish in all my professional experiences and all my personal experiences, Jeff, that if I could go back on any team that I lead and answer the question that you just asked me, why are those values, our beliefs, our personal characteristics that drive us, why are those so important? That age bracket that you just talked about, five to 20, not only is the time when our long-term memories are starting to be established and we recall that information, but that's when our formative values take shape. And the reason going back and thinking about the people that had an impact on us, thinking about how those values were instilled in us and then carry forward is so critical in the work that we do because what people can ask themselves, and once I lean back and think about what those are, and I was on a training call earlier today and we we're doing an exercise with a very seasoned leadership team. And almost to a person, they're like, wow, you know, that's kind of hard to take my values, narrow them to 10, narrow them to five, rank them one to five. But if I took the time to really reflect on those, I was amazed at how they're how they carry forward in our journey. And so when we when we go back and we let people into our story, it builds deeper relationships. And sometimes we don't take the time to do it. And it's not a hard exercise, but it's a critical exercise. Because the more that we're aligned in our values and the stories that surround them, what I'll oftentimes ask people to do once they share their values uh, with me and with our team is I'll, I'll simply ask them, where do those come from? I want to know your unique story. And if I know your unique story and I'm actively listening, it just uncorks all these things that trigger long-term memories that make us connect at a deeper level. I actually don't think it's something that can be optional in leadership and in coaching and in communication, it's I think it's mandatory. In over a thousand leaders, Jeff, that I've pulled and it's growing every single day, I'll ask them, when's the last time you thought about your core values? And over 90% of them are like, oh, I don't even know the last time I've done that. I'll get a few people I'll be like, oh, there was some leadership training where I did that one time. And then I'll ask them beyond that, if you want to build deep relationships with the people in your journey, if I lined up the people that you impact every day, can you list off their top five values? And I've had almost right. 0% of people be able to do it. And I'm like, why not? Why well, not? We, but then once, they, once you show yeah. them and model it, they'll remodel it. Yeah, we don't ask. I found it uh, interesting for me when I went through some of that work a while back. It, 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 I can see people struggle with this even today when they look at lists of values or beliefs and they start thinking about their own. They almost put this self-limiting filter on it because they think that they have to have... Uh, demonstrated that value perfectly. So they almost feel like they can't state it as a value because they don't live it every day. And I think that's a big mistake. I love your comment on this. I, I feel like when you take people through those exercises of determining those, those beliefs, those values, it's really who do you want to be known as? And who do you aspire to be? Would people, If you really wanted people to stand up and say, these are the three to five things that I really value in Dan Doherty, what are those traits, those characteristics, those beliefs, those values? Not because you act like it every day, but because you aspire to be that every day. And, and if we limit ourselves to the things that we think we've actually done, 
like these are the values that I've lived perfectly, then none of us would have any values, right? So what would you what what advice would you give folks to say, hey, when you go through this exercise, don't govern it. Don't put a governor on it. Don't limit yourself. Put it in more aspirational mode of who you want to be. It's like that, you know, that t-shirt that says, I want to be half the man my dog thinks I am. Like in a perfect world, what values do you hope that you aspire towards that people recognize in you? What's your thoughts on on that that filtering people do during that exercise? Yeah, I see it all the time. One of the filters I see most common is people like, well, Dan, if I do this exercise, do I have to look at that through my professional lens or do I look at that through my personal lens? And so to your point, I'm like, don't filter yourself. Let it go. Think about the things in your life as you represent those. Because once you espouse those values, Jeff, it's like, well, then how do you enact those values? And do an inventory, your own self-awareness where emotional intelligence comes in, your own assessment of how do I enact those values on a daily basis? And I'd love to give you an example. If I were filtering my values, I would choose to filter out that my number one value is spirituality or faith. It's just who I am. Now, do I enact that every day perfectly? Of course not. But do I try to live through that in a way that if I'm in my professional setting, I might not choose to lead with that. I want people to feel that. If I'm in my in my professional life, in my personal life, yeah, maybe if the relationship's deep enough, I might lead with it, but I'm making choices. But if I take the filter off, I don't garner or put a governor on faith or spirituality because, oh my gosh, I have to be this in the professional setting. Because it's where we get into a lot of psychology about people want to be leading towards what you just identified as really that ideal self. Who do I want to be? You know, we're caught sometimes in this real self of who I am. Great leaders, great coaches are able to look in someone, understand them through their values and their beliefs. And if they're not governed, then it's like, don't worry about, don't worry about how you enact those, but challenge yourself to how do you enact those. You don't have to be a different person. You might choose to show up slightly differently in certain situations. That's that's fine. But the reality is that those values are so foundational to who we are that if we don't ever take an inventory of it and ever learn from that. We don't open ourselves up to get and understand what are the values from other people. And that's really the art and communication to me. It's not just our own values. But if I show you that, Jeff, and then we're having a conversation, it's like, man, I would love, because I care, to learn more about what makes you tick, what makes you go, what makes you want to be the person that you want to be, and how do I, as a coach or a guide, help get you there? You open up that conversation sooner. Um, you're going to find overlap in stories. I mean, you and I being friends, you know, we have so many overlaps and stories that link back to our values, you just get there faster and deeper. And it's not to show vulnerability to be weak or any of that stuff. It's like, no, it's like, I authentically want to build a relationship. Do you open up a little bit of risk by sharing your values? Because somebody could look at you and say, "Mm, well, you espouse that, but you don't actually live that out every day. Yeah, you put a little bit of risk in the system. But if you've got trust built with people, then it's like, okay, well, call me on it. I'm not living that out. Call me on it. It's okay. We're in this for the long haul. Well, isn't that and the, that's what relationships are all about? Isn't that the beautiful thing, though? I think you know, for me, uh, when I think about how I best live out my top four beliefs, values, what's interesting in my journey has been, and um, people that have been listeners for a while know my papal story, and they know my values come from the my time on the farm. You know, hard work and perseverance, problem solvers rule the world, the platinum rule, and family matters most. I can rattle them off like crazy, but then I, as I started thinking about that. What's interesting is, is if I don't think about those every day, to me, those should be daily destinations. 
So when I'm going to the office in the morning, when I wake up, I need, I know I need to go to the office. So I consciously think I need to go to the office. So I know the direction that ends up putting me at the destination of my office. If I say, these are my four values, then how do I show my team that problem solvers rule the world and encourage them to be problem solvers so we can help other people? How do I show them that platinum rule is treat other people better than they expected to be treated? How do I treat my, my staff and how do I treat my family? Maybe in small little ways that they didn't expect me to do. And how do I make sure my family recognizes that they're first in, in everything I do every day? Now, ironically, this is what I found interesting is my belief of hard work and perseverance Turns out that's pretty much a self-serving belief at its core because I wanted to be known as that because I, I I had that ingrained in me as a kid. And it can easily, some of our beliefs can easily become self-serving unless we can twist it and say, how does my hard work and perseverance serve others? And so that's the one thing I want you to comment on. How do you tie, and we'll move on to some other fun stuff, but how do you tie when you're coaching people on their beliefs and, and why this matters getting the light bulb to go off that my belief only matters in as much as that when it's enacted, it makes a positive impact on someone else or is that yeah, an overstatement? Yeah. No, it's not. Especially if we're talking, if we're talking about anybody that's, and I want to isolate this to just leadership, but if we were talking about leadership in general and just use that as a microcosm of just broader relationships, when we look at those values and we enact them, what ends up happening, and this is, you know, in our work, and, and you know, Jeff, that our research has shown this, is that the more that we do that is kind of an anchor, kind of a starting point. That's not the whole picture. Right. But if you start there relative to, to those things and you build around those, the things that you dream about, the things that you're passionate about, kind of what your overall purpose is, and you start to build that personal story, the real magic is in, in leadership and in coaching is how, how do we live that out through the organizational lens? How do we live that out through the leader lens and then go get the employee lens? You know, and one of the things that we train leaders on across the world is shared vision, that shared vision in the middle based on what our foundations are. That's not optional. It's not, it's not optional. It's mandatory. And can you imagine the world we would live in, how much better it would be if we had that at our, at our core and as our anchor, both personally and professionally. So as you're talking about driving in the truck and coming to work, we make when you move it from the unconscious to the conscious, because we've actually done the inventory, then I then I make a choice based on my own beliefs and my own behaviors, what I do with that. You know, if I've got kind of that stern face walking in the office and I know it and I can feel it, but I have a higher level of awareness, it's going to impact what I do with it. You know, and then if I carry a certain energy into the workplace, which is extremely contagious, if one of my colleagues says, hey, um, you're not quite, not quite connecting, not quite living We've just op we've opened up the ability to challenge, you know, to yeah, have absolutely. higher level of contribution, all that good well, stuff. Well, I want to get into a little bit of some of the work that you've done and developed in your research. But before I do, I think we have to answer the question to the audience is what on earth would possess a human being at the age of 47 to spend large sums of money and, and even larger sums of time to go get their PhD? Like what on earth did, did you get possessed? Was there a problem? Did you have a bad accident and you had a brain injury? Like what, what caused this, this epiphany for you at 47? Well, I'm going to, well, I'm going to go forward. I'm, I'm going to start like current time. Then I'll go back. You know, one of the things in our friendship that you've taught me is, and I try to teach anybody this when it comes to building trust and relationships is that personal connection is so critical. And so is professional credibility. And I'm a continuous learner by, by definition, you know? And so 
on the personal connection side, we, we talk to teams all the time about how important humility is and how important authenticity is and vulnerability and honesty. So I've got to be honest in the story if I'm going to share this, because it's not what most people do. So here's basically the story behind the story. I was, you had mentioned at the very beginning of this, that I had spent a season of my life in an organization where we were owned by private equity. And in one private equity world, we were the golden child. And anybody out there that's part of private equity, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you go to board meetings and you're you're the golden child and the company's growing and all this great stuff. Those are it's awesome. But when you get under some pressure and we had done a transaction and we were in a second private equity holding period and we won a huge project and all of a sudden there was a lot of stuff happening in the organization. I had moved from being a sales and marketing professional into operations. Long story short, right around 46, 47, I was under a tremendous amount of stress and having chest pains in the middle of the night, waking up in the middle of the night with my brain just kind of running on overload, breaking out in the sweats, all this kind of stuff. My wife's like, this is not sustainable. And I spent my entire career, Jeff, in neuroscience in and around the brain. And I never really thought about the impact in leadership that neuroscience was having relative to what was happening with me. So I talked about spirituality. I didn't fully, I wish I could tell you that I fully knew in that moment what God was doing relative to that pathway. That would be such a beautiful story, but it's not honest, you know, but I came home one Saturday morning and I was on my computer and my wife's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm looking at PhD programs. And she's like, why? And I'm like, I don't know exactly why, but I know if I'm going to do something different, I've got to do something different. And so I started looking up PhD programs for executives and I'm a little snobby. So I wanted to go to an R1 school. So, you know, a top research school, if I was going to do it. And I found Case Western. And what I looked at a management program in leadership at Case Western, what I wanted to understand, Jeff, was all of a sudden the stress that I was feeling, here's what was happening. I wasn't, all the stuff we just talked about values, I wasn't connecting well with people. I wasn't coaching well with people. Everything that I knew from my stages earlier, I wasn't doing in this world. And I was having impact on my own health and performance within my team. And I knew something had to be different. So when I found Case Western, I applied to the program. I wish I had the perfect crystal ball as to why, but I got into that program and here's what happened. The first class, I get the opportunity to meet Dr. Richard Boyatzis. And if you don't know, anybody doesn't know Dr. Richard Boyatzis out there, you can Google him, but he's written Primal Leadership. He's written Helping People Change. He's all over Harvard Business Review. And he is arguably one of the godfathers of emotional intelligence. And I'm listening, listening to him over the course of a semester, dissect the neuroscience behind leadership and coaching everything that I knew but wasn't living through. And I'm like, there, there's the answer. And I probably shouldn't say this, but about two and a half, three years in the journey, I met you. And I thought, okay, here's somebody in practice running a company that's living out exactly what I'm hearing in the classroom, that's solving a problem that I had in my organization. And that pathway crystallized. Well, I thought you were going to say when you met me, you, you realized that though, there, so with Richard, it was, there's the answer. And then you met me and, oh, there's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I thought I could help this guy. I can get things straight. No, anybody listens to your podcast knows that you know what you're talking about. So, but I saw these, I saw these alignments, you know, and then I saw the back to values. I saw the personal alignment. You know, you and I have adoption in our story. You and I have neuroscience in our story. You and I have biotech and pharma. And there's like, you know, as you shared with taught me, you know, there's these God posts along the way that I'm looking at this crazy PhD journey where I'm studying leader follower relationships. I'm studying what drives engagement. How can we make those relationships better? That four and a half, five years of research that you were a partner with me on through that journey 
kind of crystallized this whole thing. And what I realized was if I allowed myself to be open, that a journey that I didn't understand on day one absolutely changed my life. And I, and I want to say this to you and anybody listening to this. You and I work really hard to help people understand their personal vision for their journey. When I was 47 and sitting in Richard's class, we did this full-blown personal vision project and it changed my journey. I'm sitting in the C-suite, Jeff, and all of a sudden I write this last paragraph. This will be in our book coming out in 2023, but I wrote this last paragraph that said, I envision myself someday being in and around a college campus with my wife, consulting relative to helping people be better leaders and have more impact in their life. I was so far from that vision. Like I was sitting in a C-suite under stress. I, I couldn't even see it. I have since sent that to my children. I sent that to people. And I'm like, if you remain open and you understand someone's journey and you understand their values and where they want to go, that may never be a direct path but you can have tremendous impact. So if you're listening to this and you have a dream and you're passionate about something, I don't care what age you are, go get it. Back to Mr. Richardson, go get it, go get it. The world will tell you not to do it, but who, who, the, heck, who the hell cares? You know what the world says, go get it, go get it. And it's, you know, and if I would have said five, six years ago, when I was in that moment on that Saturday morning, I'd be sitting here talking to you as a friend, as a business partner and, and, and what we're doing to hopefully change lives. I would have said, no way, no way will it happen. And, you know, and here we are. Um, yeah, I love it. Well, one of the things you said at the beginning of that, when you were on the computer that Saturday morning, was you knew that if you needed to, if you wanted to change, then you had to do something to change. Like if you wanted it to be different, you had to do something different. And I think that's just having that recognition and that acknowledgement. There's a lot of people listening right now that feel that way. They want something to be different. And some of them just don't want to do anything different. So they just keep want to complain about they don't have anything different. But for a lot of people, they've made that mental choice that they want something different and they're willing to do something different. They just don't know what to do. And for you, you weren't sure where you were going to end up, but you took one step and you started to take that step, which led you to the next step. And then it leads to the, ne leads to the next step. And, you know, you mentioned it, you and I are both people of faith. And we just believe that when you do that, you know, God's not going to show up and give you, a, you know, 30 years of instructions at one time and then just come back 30 years later. You know, he, he's going to reveal to you almost like one stepping stone at a time, which is I'm thankful for because I would just get off the path and run the truck into the ditch if I got more directions than a quarter mile at a time. So let's get into this a little bit, because what I love about your approach and the research that you've done um, and how you've helped people today is, and we, we share in this belief is that communication effectiveness is as, as important at home as it is in the workplace. And a lot of the issues and problems that we find in the workplace are a result of not being a great communicator in either place. <laughs> and so the irony of a lot of this research, though it was looked at empirically, quantitatively, qualitatively, all of that, in the workplace, the, the root causes of the issues behind it stem across 360 to anybody, right, as a communicator. So let's let's get into that. Let's keep that as the framework. You you started looking at, you know, the leader-follower relationship and what was working and what wasn't, and you started to get in and seeing trends and patterns around what was causing cultures to break down, and you were looking at a lot of research on engagement and disengagement, and kind of give us a little bit of a of an overview of, you know, we, we don't have, you know, this isn't a two-hour show. So, so give me a, the cliff notes. Give our listeners the cliff notes of what you discovered and then what needed to be different for folks to have better engagement at work, better productivity, better connection, better culture, which then would ripple into their homes. Yeah, for sure. It actually started where we were earlier relative to that shared vision piece. But I, I want to say this. 
we have to understand as leaders that there's even an issue, you know? And so one of the things that you do in a doctoral program is you do a lot of research to understand the environment, you know, and don't let our own mindset bias us in the environment. And so when I was doing some of that research, you know, the reality is if, you know, you don't have to go any further than Gallup's work and saying that seven out of 10 people are not engaged or actively disengaged. You don't have to go any farther than the Bureau of Labor Statistics to be like, we're only staying with companies two to four years, especially in the, in the younger generations, which the millennials are not really the younger generation. We're 26 to 41. And when we have all this turnover and the stuff that's happening now, as we sit here, it's costing billions of dollars to the U.S. economy. So we have to understand that all of that feeds into the fact that still one of the most dominant reasons that someone leaves an organization is because of the person that they work for. And so that all filter down and to say, well, how do, I, how do we look at and cover to make that, make that stronger? So, because you can study, Jeff, organization level, you can study business units, you can study team dynamics. I wanted to study dyadic relationships, leader, follower, one-to-one, because to your point, that impacts our personal relationships and our professional relationships. So once I narrowed in on that, it's like, okay, let's look at what happens inside there. So the work that we did, which is, you know, formed kind of the model that you and I co-created was... It was like, we're going to start in the center foundation of helping helping people have that stronger shared vision. But what a lot of organizations will do is they might try to do it at the leader level, but they don't do it at, you know, kind of the triad that we look at, which is what is that organizational vision aligned to the leader vision, aligned to the employee vision? If any of those are out of, out of kilter, the system, because organizations are complex systems, and in complex systems, if you have one piece that goes out of alignment, the thing doesn't run as smoothly. So those things have to be aligned. That's foundational. You know, so one of the things that we try to really help teams on is understand that if that foundation is strong, what it does is it opens up your ability to situationally coach. And, you know, there is no magic silver bullet for every conversation. But if you have the right foundation, like building a house, you can do all kinds of amazing things above it. You know, so that opens up this situational coaching. Getting that in the right order, you know, is, is critical. And as you know, and I hope your listeners know from listening to you on, on a number of these podcasts is we use the foundations of neuroscience only as a reason for people to look at it and say, wow, we as human beings are complex. We process information to make decisions in certain ways, in certain orders. And a lot of our chemistry is wired the same. You can't bypass that in order to build a great foundation. But if you build a great foundation, then we can lean in and show people how do you situationally coach to drive performance, you know, to drive what it is in your organization that's going to get the best out of people to get the best performance. Because as you've often shared with me, you know, we're not in the life coaching business. I'm not a life coach. I'm a performance coach. But it still doesn't mean just because we're driven on performance. It doesn't mean that we don't set that foundation to open up situational coaching. You know, and we looked at that qualitatively. We looked at that quantitatively. And we're going to continue to look at it for years. But I firmly believe that there is a methodology, an approach, a framework that can help people do that uh, with more impact. So let's jump into one of the topics because I love the idea. <clears throat> We've got the organizational vision, leader vision, and, and employee vision. And we, we could go for days on this because I think people think they understand what that means. And then they, when you start to unpack it, it just means that does somebody know what their job is? That's role clarity. That's completely different. That's not employee vision. I don't want to tackle that right now. But I, what I do want to do, we'll circle back to that is, 
you 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 studied one specific category and topic in the leader um, employee leader follower relationship that I found fascinating. And again, I knew it intuitively, but then I knew the science behind it. And then through your dissertation research work, we really was it were able to to galvanize around this. And I joke around a lot. You've heard me say this a lot. What's the worst question you can ever ask as a manager or leader inside your company to one of your employees? Are you open to some feedback? Can, can you? Can, and, and if you're listening right now and you're a manager or a leader in any company, you're like, well, what's wrong with that? I, I've asked that question like literally three times a week because I'm asking for permission to tell some. the science behind that. We know that. But then there's more to just the science behind what it does to the person listening. Tell us a little bit more what you discovered, both from a scientific, neuroscientific standpoint around that question and its implications, and more importantly, the value that it has or lack of value that it has, and how can we do it differently as coaches? Well, I'll say this, first of all, if, if ever, anyone listening is, I, I would ask I would ask you as you're, you know, as you're listening to this podcast, driving in your car, on a treadmill, whatever, how did you receive the last piece of feedback that someone gave you? And were you open to even receiving it? You know, how do you look at feedback versus input? How do you look at what people are saying? They're trying to help you. So here's what happened to me. I went in with every every researcher goes in with hypotheses. I went in with the hypothesis that if if you, I looked at shared vision and I the kind of that relational climate piece we were just talking about and looked at role clarity as, as an example, because I knew it was more transactional. And then we couldn't look at everything. It was, you know, you can't have every factor in every study. But then we also looked at feedback, both positive and negative feedback. My hypothesis was, is that if you had more positive feedback, it's going to drive engagement. Makes sense. And so we went out to real, right? It makes sense. I'm like, well, if you have more positive feedback and you can find all this literature about, about feedback. And then we went to actual leaders and their team members that they were responsible for leading. And we did this research in real companies. And feedback, Jeff, literally as, and it was a direct effect. So we didn't do any mediating or moderating, but a direct effect look was that feedback didn't move the needle at all relative to engagement. And at first I was like, oh my gosh, that's a failed hypothesis. And then as, as my dissertation committee and myself, and we're looking to publish this data next year, as we looked into that, we said, wow, shared vision moved the needle, role clarity moved the needle, but feedback and isolation didn't. And I want everybody to hear this because if you go back to the neuroscience, it makes sense because are we open to receiving that input depends on that foundation that we've created and how that, and how we communicate that information. Cause if I'm not open to new ideas and I just, you know, and I just nail you transaction with, Hey, I'm super busy. You're super busy. So Jeff, here's the three things that we have to fix. And I'm like, I ain't even listening. Yep. I'm not listening. Cause we don't have that right foundation set. And so it's not that feedback is just, we throw it out. We have to do it as leaders and coaches, but how do we do it in a way that actually drives an impact in the conversation is all about how it's received. And I'll ask everybody a question. When you think about your team, when was the last time that someone came to you seeking feedback? Because if you look at literature on feedback, seeking feedback is a really interesting phenomenon. Because if you have trust and you're a trusted advisor or a trusted leader to someone, and I come to you, Jeff, and I'm seeking that feedback, that's a completely different context than me just saying, here's the feedback I have for you. And whether we're coaching through the windshield looking out or we're coaching through the rearview mirror looking back, how much time do we as coaches spend looking back? I just want everybody to hear me on this. It's not that feedback is irrelevant. It just has a direct effect, didn't move the needle. And there's more research out there that shows that. So if you don't get that foundation right, the neuroscience way, people are going to block you at the door. 
because you're, you're, you're hitting the wrong part of the brain at the wrong time. And if you don't set up that situation in the right way, you're not going to drive the same level of impact um, because it's not received in the right way. And this is such a, and it was an aha for me, and I've been studying the neuroscience for a while by the time that, you know, we talked through this. And it's it's similar to how our brain, you know, words matter. And, and culturally, words matter. Over time, you know, words become indoctrinated into our subconscious and our psyche and in the professional world. And I want everyone listening just to think right now, you probably report to somebody. If tomorrow morning they called you into their office or picked up the phone and called you and said, hey, listen, I need to give you some feedback. Or, hey, can I give you some feedback? What would happen in your brain instantaneously? Picture that. Your brain would immediately go to, oh, my gosh, what did I do wrong? It's no different than, you know, you walking out tonight for dinner and your spouse going, is that what you're going to wear? She's about to give you some feedback. <laughs> and you immediately go, oh, this isn't good enough. So it isn't that feedback, I think the word is wrong. I think we've equated coaching with feedback. And, I, and when you hear it, when you ask somebody, what is, is, what's a great coach do? Well, they give, they like to give great feedback. And I think what I discovered working with you was that that, that word has a negative connotation in the subconscious, activating my self-preservation, causing me to shut down the parts of my brain that are open to change and new ideas. So we know that now. So then now how do we coach, you, know, you and I started calling it feed forward, right? How do we coach in a way that allows people to receive coaching, meaning I can do something different or I can do something better or improve? Because that's the pushback you get. Like, well, my job as a manager is to make people get better. How do we do that then in light of the latest in neuroscience so that we don't get hung up in that self-preservation conundrum? Yeah, well, first of all, if you want to, if somebody wants to test your your comment there, just um, go to a live microphone and and put your hand on top of the microphone and see how that sounds to your ear. That's what feedback looks like oftentimes in our coaching conversations. That dissonant sounds like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to hear it. I have to fix it. So to your question about how do you activate it, what do you do, what do you do with it? You know, is that if you have that right foundation that we talked about, when you get into situational coaching, it's have clarity of purpose in conversations. And there's a big one here that I want us to hit, and it links directly to the neuroscience. Can you put yourself in a position, even when you maybe have high emotional energy, to understand someone else's perspective? And what we coach people on, if you can understand your pers someone else's perspective, not only as a coach, does it help you downregulate your own emotion, but it helps downregulate the emotion of the person that you're coaching. Because if I can articulate to you that I've thought about your perspective, I want to make sure I have your perspective either not only correct, but aligned to where you ultimately want to go, because the end goal is to get you to where you want to go. If I do that in that right order, it opens up the emotional empathic network of the brain, which is where we're more open to new ideas. It's more, it's where we visualize success of me going from where I am today to ultimately where I want to go. It's where our long-term memories are stored. It's where trust is built. Everybody's like, well, let's just build trust. I'm like, well, you're, you're triggering a part, a pathway in the brain. And this is neuroscience research. That's brand, I mean, brand new, three, four years old, you know, that puts us into current times. So I can, I can trigger that to where it builds deeper trust so that when we get to the plan of how you're going to ultimately succeed, which we can measure, I'm doing it in a way that's putting information into the system that someone's looking at it through the lens of they're giving me this input so that I can get to a better place. You know, and one of the things that people always ask me in coaching sessions, they're like, well, what if I have to have that really tough conversation, Dan? Everybody wants to run, everybody wants to, run to the, 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 the most negative conversation you ever have to have as a coach, right? 
Yeah. And I'm like, that's so wrong. Right. I'm like, you're asking me the wrong question as a coach. I want to know what did you do leading up right. to that tough conversation? And it's, and in this, and what we're talking about here, Jeff is so transformative. You know, it's why we launched our Academy. It's why we're writing the book on neuro coaching is because if we get this stuff in the right order, we know it triggers, it triggers the right pathways in the brain. Does it always work hundred percent of the time? Is anything perfect? No, but what it does is it helps you intentionally coach in a way that puts people in a position that triggers the, the empathic network, which means you care about what they care about. Not that you're weak. You just care about what they care about so that they're more open to receive the information that you have. And in everything that we train people on, if they can deliver that information, if they have it, the right information, deliver it the right way in the right order, it's going to have impact on that conversation because it is a continuous journey. It, it never ends. That's why people, some people don't like to coach. You know, we've had people we've coached. I'm like, they come after me after training. I'm like, I don't think I want to be a coach anymore. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, because it's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy. No, I was Every one of them, by the way. What's I that? was one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> no, you weren't. But it's like everybody's individual journey is different, which is why if you don't have that foundation, you can't do what we're talking about on the outside to have the greatest impact in coaching. And you get so mired down under stress, back to my story when I wasn't seeing performance, I was so mired in stress, Jeff, that if I'm honest with myself, I'm ashamed at how many hours I was in my office with the door closed. How many times when I walked through the floor, I wasn't willing to have the conversations to build a deeper relationship because of the pressure. How many times people came to my office and I'm multitasking because I had a million things to do and it wasn't having connection. How many times I gave feedback, direct feedback and thought, well, that'll go good. Now go do what I want to do. And I'm putting so much junk uh, into the system. They didn't know. Yeah. What and that's such it. a powerful thing. And, I, and I, for the listeners right now, I want you to envision and don't, don't close your eyes if you're driving, but I want you to, if you're not uh, close your eyes, and I want you to picture a waterfall that has seven tiers to it. So it's like a stair step. It's, it's on this beautiful cove. And, and this, this river falls in at the very top way up there. And it drops seven times in like a stair step fashion uh, to the bottom in this beautiful pool of blue green water. That is an organization the employees at the bottom are at the pool, the leadership at the C-suites at the top, and that water is cortisol. It's I call it the cortisol trickle-down effect. And guess how much the water weighs at the top when it's barely coming out of the river versus when it's piled down seven layers on top of people. And I think that's what we see, right, over and over and over again, is these companies, they they just, they, they manage people instead of leading and coaching them. And the stress and the pressure just continues to tumble down through the organizational chart, and it lands on the individual contributors and, and, and it's not necessarily their manager's fault, though it is because they're being managed the same way and their managers are managing them the same way. And because no one does this, it's got this ripple down effect of stress in an organization. And that's when you have a culture that just will literally implode and people who will leave, right? It so, it so does. And I, I want to say, because I want to also kind of put a little bit of a bow on the stuff we were talking about. What you're just describing is the power of that emotional contagion. Emotions are contagious and people feel it and they carry it. And the more, whatever you model at the top of that kind of waterfall, it just, it goes like that ripple and it's remodeled. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a hurricane effect. You know, um, the center of the eye is sometimes you, which is causing the most pain, but it only gets bigger and swells. And if you, and that is, that is contagious through organizations, you know? So if I was kind of putting a bow on some of the stuff we've talked about, it's, it's, it's a, I want to create a clear picture because the good news about leadership and about coaching is this stuff can be trained. It can be trained, you know, and it can be learned. 
if you know, you know, if, especially if you go to people that know what they're doing, you know, so at the end of the day, science supports a reason to understand how we process information to consider change. This is the driving change podcast. How do you drive change in a way that connects? The science supports all that. When you move into that foundational piece, piece of coaching, which I kind of uncovered and, and not just me, now almost 30 years of research and leadership and coaching, to having that solid foundation opens you up to situational coaching, which is then kind of aligned to somebody else's perspective so you can get the performance that you need. There is a way to work that in the art of coaching that makes the world's best coaches. If you study them, I get so tired of people saying, well, that coach is so transactional or that coach is so relational. My question is, how intentional are they at coaching? How do they build individual relationships when you're not around? You only see what you see. What happens when the doors close relative to building that team, building that culture? Um, There's a better way. And we as leaders are either going to start to lean into that and say, we're not going to run away from some of the science that supports what we're talking about, how much impact that can have. Um, I love the picture of your shoulder. You got to reach down as that leader and grab somebody and pull them up and you pull them up. That's our job as coaches, help guide them from where they are to where they want to go to drive both, you know, individual and organizational performance and performance matters. So let me do a little recap here and then let's point people some resources. So, uh, what I've heard you say is, and, and now the science kind of backs all this up is, is this, this triad of shared vision, every organization needs it. Organizational vision on development, leader vision. Why would anyone want to follow you? And why would you be good for them? And employee vision, where are they trying to go and how can you help them get there? If you don't have that defined, you really don't have the core of what's necessary for a good culture. Is that right? Absolutely right. And once you have that, then you have to have some way of doing situational conversational coaching so that your coaches can actually engage your people in a positive, productive way, no matter what the situation is, any point, any given part of the day. And that's where you're talking about the understanding, the perspective of of the person that you're actually trying to coach. How do you know, how do they know you care about what they care about? You should probably take some time to understand what they care about. That goes back to the personal vision. And it could be anything, right? What's the what's their perspective? How do you help them think through the plans and their path and their progress? And how do you measure performance? All that. So they got to have a situational way to get coaches to be unconsciously competent at communicating this way. Um, is that right? Do I get that right? Hundred percent. And when you get under stress, you're gonna you're gonna move into the way that you know how to you know how to coach. Watch great coaches. If if it's intentional, even when you're under extreme amounts of stress, which I wish I knew seven years ago, 10 years ago, but I know now, you know, and how do we carry that forward to help people coach with purpose and impact to drive those relationships is the more intentional you can do that, the more it has impact from a hallway conversation all the way to the boardroom. This isn't just for CEOs. I actually have a heart for first and second line managers, right? you know, that want to be leaders that want to really understand how to coach. And it's going to help. It's going to help you on the ball field. It's going to help you coaching theater. It's going to help you do whatever it is that you coach personally. Uh, or 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 professionally. Well, and then what you said, I want to I want to make sure no matter who's listening, whether you're managing or leading people or not, whether you're at home, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. That you will tend to default to your highest level of training and knowledge, instinctive communication when you feel stressed. So if you're under any type of stress, you take that stress home to you from work, you're going to communicate more transactionally with your spouse and with your kids. And it won't be an empathic, generally speaking, most people's default setting under stress is not empathy. <laughs> it's usually being transactional communicators. And, and we didn't even get into a lot of the, the art of asking great questions and all that stuff. We can do that on another episode. So where can people learn more about the research that you've done, the model that you've created 
Um, and I know you're doing a lot more keynote speaking now on this and going out and speaking to large groups, small groups. Um, you know, you're going to conferences, whatever, where you can kind of preach the gospel of how to be a more performance driven, empathic, purposeful coach. Uh, where can people learn more about how to book you as a speaker and also learn more about your, your coaching model from your research? Yeah, thank you, Jeff. So people can reach out to me at dandoherty.com um, or you can find us at braintrustgrowth.com forward slash neurocoaching, braintrustgrowth.com forward slash neurocoaching and reach out to us. I would love to have a conversation about how we can serve you in a way to bring what we're talking about to life, either for you, you know, with for you personally and for your organization. So appreciate you asking that. Last question. 12 months from now, it's Christmas, and the, 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 the society of world-class coaches calls you and says, you've, you've won the award. When they get up and describe what characteristics you demonstrated to win the award, what do you hope they say about you? Yeah, I, I hope they say that the only reason I'm standing up here is that in our coaching, we, had, we focused on the impact that we want to make in people so they can live out their best selves. You know, and if, and if we do that with empathy, meaning that I care about what they care about, but more importantly, compassion, I mean, I put that into action. If that's why I was standing up there and it's having this ripple effect to help people build better relationships, because quite honestly, Jeff, we struggle with it personally and professionally. Not only the all the insights I gave earlier, but the fact that we sit here at 50, 60% divorce rates in this country, we have to understand that there's nothing more important than building these relationships. And if we can do that, then uh, I'll accept any award that anybody's willing to give me. That's great. I love it because better relationships equals a lot of better other things, right? Better relationships equals better companies. Better relationships equals better families. Better relationships equals better communities. And the root of having better relationships is being a better communicator and learning stuff from Dan and the stuff that he does and teaches and the impact that he's got, he's having on, on people today is off the charts. So if you don't know Dr. Dan Doherty yet, you should get to know him, follow him on his social media, go to his spot, go to his speaking site, look into neuro coaching, bring it into your organization. Um, and he's the real deal. So Dan, thank you for being on. And we look forward to having you on again soon. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.